Magic Without Fears, Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. Without Fears, Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. Rewriting Monastic Spirituality, Psychotheological Hermeneutics for Spiritual Direction in Thomas Merton. Graduate Psychology and Spirituality, Seminar, 30th September, 2004. Directed by Dr. Bonnell Strickling. I want to begin by saying anything to do with Thomas Merton holds a close place in my heart uh, because not only do he and I share a birthday, January 31st, very different years of course, but I also won his scholarship in my second year of graduate school. So everything he writes is, is something that dings on a deep level. Now unfortunately I need to preface this essay as I feel I need to preface many of these days by saying that if you are operating out of a contemporary redefined interpretation of the word feminist, as in not egalitarian, but to mean instead that one gender is better than the other, a lot of my writing is not going to land with you properly. Um, also, if you conflate postmodernism and poststructuralism, you're gonna be lost. And if you also don't understand what structuralism is, and the fact that structuralism is usually what people mean when they say deconstruction today, again, you'll get quite lost. If you allow the terms to exist in their proper form, as they are actually defined, then you'll have a good time. And also, if you think semiotics, the discipline of semiotics, has anything to do with relativism, per se, yeah, you might need to, you know, read a few more books. But otherwise, you'll have a good time, so enjoy. 1. Introduction. Goals, Agendas, and Obfuscation. Everything is outside of this text. However, there is nothing outside of text. That is to say, this essay will read everything textually or semiotically. This is at once going to be a goal, guiding agenda, and also an ambiguous factor that runs through the following pages. Intentionally, This method of studying spiritual direction will proceed from acknowledgement that the subject can only be limitedly addressed. What might be more fully addressed are problematics underlying contemporary approaches and thought about the subject, revealing, as it were, problems of totalization, meta-narrative, and presumption that continue to tyrannize spiritual people today.
To this end, we must keep in mind four main texts. Foremost of these is Plato, issuing from but not unequal to is Aristotle, while revolutionary to these, both, is Heidegger, and most relevant and evident at hand today is Derrida. Between these alphas and omegas of philosophical thought, a world of texts is at play and will be what I address. Therefore, in writing this essay, a certain hospitality will be given to various textual traditions and non-textual orders of relevance that may wander in or across the page. This essay determines to examine certain philosophical assumptions and bases at work in any consideration of spiritual direction. 2. Writers, the author, and dead white Greeks. If everything in philosophy begins with Plato and Aristotle, and there is nothing within the study of spirituality that is not found in the texts of Plato, it follows any discussion of the spiritual life should begin with these two white male Greek authors. Note, given some necessary brevity in this study, a review of Heideggerian hermeneutics or the deconstruction of Jacques Derrida must be omitted and left to you, dear listener, to understand what are common methodologies in the concerned fields today. For brief clarifications or reference for further study of terms and concepts, for example, Cora, Difference, Erasure, Abgrund, see a Derrida dictionary. Note that these are not necessarily deconstructivist terms, but span the field of 20th century philosophy from modernism to postmodernism, structuralism to post-structuralism, and the semiotics that actually ties it all together, though is often ignored. A further note, Robert Corrington, in his work Bringing Semiotics into Naturalist Cosmologies, adopts the useful term orders of relevance that he uses to refer to any signs, or what Derrida would call texts. However, for Corrington, orders of relevance have an outside, it seems, when they are found within the nature-naturing of pre-semiosis. This, given the context of spirituality in this essay, will be considered, along with, though not identical to, ideas of apophaticism as well as negative theology. These two, it should be noted from this outset, though highly related, are not the same. Note bene, to those not familiar with Derrida's rhetorical technique called erasure, it is simply a method of speaking of something while denying its often seen appeal or reliance on some ontological presence. For example, so, in the case here, spiritual is denied any explicit textual signification, and the word is denied any separative act of separation between spiritual people as anything different from any other person. Now let's get back to the Greeks. So, by saying this in Principia, I am asserting a hermeneutics that regard the contextual identity, genders, status of the authors as significant in any understanding of their thoughts. That said, I can only approach these men as a young Canadian, Irish, Italian who feels acutely the responsibility to respect the canons of theology and philosophy but who is at the same time caught in the tempests of post-millennial, post-modern, post-structuralist thought. Today, I feel the urgent need to speak to the ethical confusions and spiritual wastes and wilderness that is are often lonely, 
yet global, village. In brief, Plato argued for a world of forms, archetypal ideas that existed transcendent to human life and beyond the particularity of accidental objects. Aristotle opposed this by proposing an essential essence that united being at the core of accidentals, but that it was through the particulars that we can come to know the essence of an object or idea. Where Plato is interpreted as mainly concerned with another world, in a sense, the transcendental, most think Aristotle believed that essentially matter matters, and that the unifying substance was within accidental forms. Plato held sway within early centuries of Western thought. Aristotle was not rediscovered until the Middle Ages through Islamic sources and became the new framework of all Western thought beginning with Thomas Aquinas' adoption of Aristotelian methods in his Summa Theologia. Recalling at least these, the mainstream interpretations of the Western world's seminal philosophers, is a necessary basis for contextualizing my work here. For the deconstructionism that has led the way in post-structuralist thought is prominent among postmodern intellectual movements, particularly and famously for the challenge to Plato's Metaphysics of Presence by Jacques Derrida's 1967 work De la Grammatologie, on grammatology or of grammatology. Derrida wants us to be aware that the study of Plato and Aristotle is not what it is professed to be. Rather, we study the philosophy of Plato and the philosophy of Aristotle, canons of texts that ignore and suppress other readings in order to neatly conclude a synthesized and apprehendable philosophy. What most needs to be considered by us today is the vast bridge that stretches from Greek thought to contemporary continental philosophy and post-religious spirituality. It is a given that much of the pearls of Greek thought were drawn from the washed-ashore vessels of earlier Hebrew and even earlier Egyptian thought. Interestingly, this directly indicates the very tension I want to address, because the problematics that pervade contemporary spiritual life issue from an anxiety of global and personal conflict, the paradoxes of pluralism and the tension of closures and openings characteristic of our ecological and political ascesis within all orders of relevance today. Note, ascesis means spiritual warfare, and again, orders of relevance is referring to anything, anywhere, through the semiotics of Robert Corrington. That is to say, everything is at war, from mineral to plant to animal, this includes human, and even deiform life. From ecological cycles of death and rebirth, through to the theomachy of God and Satan, events of spiritual warfare are taking place. Derrida is battling Plato. Deconstructions are battling the canonical readings of philosophy's great texts, and the bridge shakes that carries us over the flowing river. Which, like Umberto Eco's ontological structuralism, is an ultimate and united, while at once plural, reality that, though it exists, is never fully, completely, totally known. And we are left to work out this rhapsodical salvation and hopefully, as we were advised to do so, in fear and trembling. Note, 
I referenced there Umberto Eco's Opera Aperta, the open work, page 227, as well as cite one of the Corinthian texts and also Soren Kierkegaard. It is interesting that this whole context was known and the human condition addressed in the 3rd century. In his homily, Origen addresses this context of war and the ascesis, the spiritual psychosemiotic combat we are called to engage in. He said, God did not create death, he did not create evil, but left to human beings, as to angels, freedom in everything. Thus, through their freedom, some rise to the highest good, others rush headlong into the depths of evil. But you, man, homo, why do you reject your freedom? Why this reluctance to have to make an effort, to toil, to fight, to become an artificer of your own salvation? My father is working still, it is written, and I am working. John 5.17 Are you then reluctant to work? You who were created in order to create positively? Note from Origen, first homily on Ezekiel 3 GCS 8.3.26 Quoted in Olivier Clement, The Roots of Christian Mysticism, Texts from the Patristic Era with Commentary, 1993. Check it out. That's from page 130. And though I didn't get into it back in 2004, one of the most important things about the patristic texts and their interpretations through classical Greek pagan philosophy is that that's the era in which Christianity was forming, which were part of canon and which were not, what was going to be canonized and what was going to be considered heretical or Gnostic or what have you. Moving on. The transgression, which is what I am about in this rewriting of monastic spirituality, takes its first step from this exhortation by Origen to create positively. By deeming necessary to apply a deconstructive hermeneutic, shown to be essential in postmodern readings of totalities such as the philosophy of Plato, to spiritual direction, I transgress into something different. The ascesis here may lead many places but the combat itself is against a vacuousness within spirituality, a vacant emptiness in contemporary culture. Not alone, but in dialogue with other writers and texts, this essay will explore a spirituality that is perhaps still alive in the texts of Plato and Aristotle. In examining the writings of living and recently deceased writers on spiritual direction and monastic spirituality, the intertextuality that is altogether endemic to all post-Socratic Western spiritual writers will be reviewed. And in this way, the continued effects of Platonic and Aristotelian philosophies will be read. 3. Thomas Merton These ideas, beginning in Plato and Aristotle, are considered in their transition from modern to a postmodern form in the theological retrievals of Thomas Merton. Merton, a monk born in 1915 and who died in 1968, began a revival in spiritual direction as well as an appreciation for apophaticism and contemplative spirituality. While Thomas Merton was born in France and of Anglo-Celtic descent, he settled in the early 20th century in Kentucky at the Abbey of Gethsemane, living there until his death in India by accidental electrocution. A wonderful book is by one of my former teachers, Michael Higgins, Heretic Blood. And Merton's most famous book is Seven Story Mountain, which famously is one of the most sold books in all of history, quite shockingly to all people at the time. It's an autobiography he wrote in his mid-30s after being ordained a priest in the Trappist order.
Regardless of his socio-historical context, I believe Merton understands the historical and spiritual tradition, contexts, and needs outlined above and reflected in the words of Origen. Merton understands, as Evagrius of Pontus said in the 4th century, that spiritual fat is the obtuseness with which evil cloaks the intelligence. He knows that the response we are called to is like the exhortation of the desert mother, St. Syncletica. She says, Now it is written, Our God is a consuming fire. So we must light the divine fire within us with tears and struggle. Merton took his roots in the early mystical, patristic, and monastic spirituality of the Christian tradition. What he and his followers, Thomas Keating, Richard Rohr, Cynthia Bourgeau, have done with their lives is rewrite this spirituality. Rewriting is important. Given Gadamerian hermeneutics, it must be understood as intrinsic to understanding. Kierkegaard says there is no production at all, only reproduction. Thus, the only writing that is possible is rewriting. I think the constant within these authors is mystical theology. According to Mark McIntosh, 1998, and as an order of semiotic relevance, mystical theology begins by tracing the sounding forth, the cataphasis, of God's glory in divine self-expression. From the eternal Trinitarian life of the creation of the universe, then it moves toward consummation by a series of ascending dialectical negations, the apophasis, into the eternally fruitful darkness of unknowing which is the only real knowing a creature can have of God. For these authors, the fullest understanding of this cataphatic, apophatic structure is to take the spiritual journey along the way oneself. This means that the medium in which the structure of reality and our knowledge of reality are held together is mystical theology. This idea lives in one form or another in the theologies of Merton as a mystical theologian. In examining this text, what will be looked for are the transgressions, openings and marginal ideas contributing to a rewritten monastic spirituality. Before beginning this analysis, a final word about method is due. The use of erasure, a deconstructive method, as regards the word monastic, intends to destabilize, defer, and show the difference to what has been previously understood and interpreted. Kevin Hart has a theologically sensitive survey of this mode of metaphysical analysis begun with Martin Heidegger and continued by Jacques Derrida. Considering the text that will follow, it is essential that this psychotheological hermeneutic is well understood. Within the context of negative theology, apophaticism, and deconstruction, quote, Pseudo-Dionysius denies that God is a being and denies that God is being. The divinity, he says, is beyond being, beyond beingly before all, or, to borrow Levinas's concise formulation, otherwise than being. That's in Pseudo-Dionysius, the divine names. Given this, Derrida is wrong to say that negative theology reserves a supreme being beyond the categories of being, just as sign must be crossed out in the deconstruction of metaphysics, so too must God in the deconstruction of positive theology. The God of negative theology is transcendent in that he transcends being, all conceptions of being as presence, as well as the categories of gender. 
the negative theologian uses language under erasure, e.g. monastic crossed out. And this, I think, gives us a better account of what happens in mystical discourse than has been done under the familiar rubric of paradox. While the passage here is extensive, its significance and relevance will pervade all the views of the spiritual direction that follow. 4. Merton's Spiritual Direction and Meditation, 1960 A primary contextual hindrance in understanding Thomas Merton is the fact that he writes as a supernaturalist, but intends differently. There is little in conflict between Merton and a naturalist perspective. From Merton's writings of nature, juxtaposed to his journal reflections on religious life, it is easy to see the aporia within Mertonian supernaturalism that allows an ecstatic naturalist reading and, notwithstanding, an emancipatory reenactment. What I've noticed is, yes, he was bound very much by his time in the Catholic Church in the 50s and earlier to interpret supernaturally. But if you look at actually his journal writings and, and all his other work, it's quite clear that he interprets as God living very much in and with and through the world. Emancipatory reenactment is another semiotic terminology for uh, decontextualizing an interpretation so that it can have relevance for us today. Establishing Merton as an ecstatic naturalist is controversial. However, replacing this Catholic monk's metaphysical base allows for a continuing interpretation of the still-living theologians who in most ways follow his thought. My rewriting of Merton's views, all of which center on a spiritual direction drawn from Christian monastic existentialism, asserts that Merton would be comfortable with all supernaturalism being considered as within nature. The super thus being rewritten as the ecstatic element. The dual components of supernaturalism that are being destabilized are one, experiential, and two, the political. The experience of humans sensing a reality beyond the faculties, five senses, in ecstatic naturalism is explained as a psychosemiotic inclusion in orders of relevance, aspects of reality, that are within sacred folds in nature. Quote, the concept of the sacred fold has appeared in several places as a way of indicating that there is something about the how of nature that generates unusual orders of great semiotic density and scope that cannot be said to derive their efficacy from human projection alone. Stonehenge is such a sacred fold, even though it is a human product as much as it is a natural product. The concept of fold denotes the quality of a folding back over on itself again and again so that the sign vehicle becomes a series of indefinitely ramified orders within a deep numinous core that transforms them under certain conditions, conditions that may never be fully understood. Corrington, 2000. Thus, the experiential is included within a grand natural scheme. For Merton, God is total. For ecstatic naturalism, nature is total, thus large enough to include an ostensibly, although not actually, transcendental God beyond nature. What is sought is not an eradication of the numinous sense that is often ascribed to and described as the supernatural, rather a redefinition and rewriting of its categorical metaphysic. The spiritual experience that we have called supernatural is now called natural, or at most ecstatic. The experiences remain the same.
The political destabilization that occurs in ecstatic naturalism and this expansion of nature to a totalization of reality is the removal of tyrannical power from human instituted orders. Aside from the obvious use of supernatural authority claimed by most churches, including the historical Catholicism, psychosemiotic political tyranny is also evident. Charismatic leaders, gurus, spiritual masters, who assert a special locatedness for themselves due to supernatural disclosures of privileged esoteric gnosis, tyrannize the polis of their interpreters, who are always called upon to understand and are unavoidably influenced by the outgoing semiosis. Spiritual leaders assume and possess particular psychosemiotic force. This force is destabilized when taken into an ecstatic naturalism that equalizes the potentiality of access for all orders of relevance. The tyrant has no special knowledge when that knowledge is available to everyone and everything. The only specialness is one of role. Then, that is given and confirmed by the community of interpreters and the dignity of the leader's own psychosemiotic integrity. Thomas Merton's own perspective supports this method and movement of ecstatic naturalist cosmology within the texts of his own writing. To show this, I will particularly study his spiritual direction and meditation. Not only do Merton's views conform with the above, but further integrate the view of apophaticism that is paradigmatic to the heuristic agenda of ecstatic naturalism, especially concerning the pre-semiotic and nature naturing. In other words, the nature before the visible nature. Note, due to the particular cosmology of this naturalism, it is important to recognize that the description of the pre-semiotic or nature-naturing as simply indefinitely invisible is not necessarily true. The faculties are, I believe, categorically excluded from contact with the pre-semiosis, especially in regard the concept of Cora. C.F. Corrington, 1998. This text, studied within the context I have outlined above, is a revised collection of several articles written by Merton over time in the magazine Sponsoregis until 1959. What is unique to Merton and absent in his spiritual followers is that Merton has only ordained persons in mind as the audience of his text. This pre-60s, pre-Vatican II context is telling what makes the text an interesting study and informative to other texts is the insight of Merton, his prophetic awareness of issues that will one day take center stage, and his sensitivity to the problems and spiritual direction current to his time and evident in humanity's past. This text is one of the few by Merton to receive the nihil obstat, meaning it is authorized by the Vatican as sinless teachings from the Church. Merton sets the tone for understanding spiritual direction from the start. Quote, it is not mere ethical, social, or psychological guidance. He says it is spiritual. This quaternary is the base point for Merton. His readers are aware of his adepthood in discussing ethics, sociality, and psychology, but he chooses to remind us about the integrating spirit that must supersede and be recognized within the rest. Here I suggest there is also the first hint of an underlying apophaticism in Merton's monasticism and spiritual direction. For while ethics, society, and psychology are based in visible realities and acted out in the world, 
spirit resists expression. Merton comes from an understanding of Meister Eckhart and John of the Cross. When Merton speaks of the spiritual, he speaks from a belief in something or a no-thing beyond his Trinitarian confession. Such, of course, could not be made explicit in a text with Nihil Obstat. Merton's heterodox mystical tendencies are part of why other writings of his did not receive the imprimatur of the Church. Merton's prophecies were not of invention, but of a hermeneutics of retrieval. He sensed what was needed from the tradition, where humanity was headed and what it called for, and gave what guidance he could. Here we can see his anticipation of the holistic movement, which has made such a brouhaha through the 1990s. Quote, the spiritual director is concerned with the whole person, for the spiritual life is not just the life of the mind, or of the affections, or of the summit of the soul. It is the life of the whole person, for the spiritual man and woman, pneumaticos, is one whose whole life, in all its aspects and all its activities, has been spiritualized by the action of the Holy Spirit, whether through the sacraments or by personal, interior, inspiration. Moreover, spiritual direction is concerned with the whole person, not simply as an individual being, but as a son or daughter of God, another Christ, seeking to recover the perfect likeness to God in Christ and by the Spirit of Christ. Merton, 1960, page 14 to 15. Merton sees 1 Corinthians 10.31 as emblematic of the modus for a spiritual person. Merton is seeing the spiritual life as one of transformative spirituality, in which there is not merely a translation of love of God to devotional acts, but a love of God that divinizes the entire person, a theosis of human life into divine life. As an earlier teaching of the Church, theosis has been maintained in the Eastern Church, but only recently, largely thanks to Merton, been retrieved in the West. This has been corollary in monastic life to the practice of meditation. While this revival of reinterpreted monastic spirituality has been publicized beyond the esotericism of the monasteries and abbeys, a key facet of its understanding is even still unretrieved. The postmodern reader will hardly fail to notice the exclusive language of Merton, which, as writers such as Julia Kristeva point out, is the indicative tip of the iceberg to a greater problematic in modern and pre-modern thought and spirituality. Along with Merton's exclusion of the feminine gender in his writing, despite the fact that female monastics were well known to be among his audience, marginalization of the emotional, the desiring component of human selves, is evident. Though the text mentions the ethical, social, and psychological, contemporary readings and thought argue the emotional should not just be explicitly included in the categories of self, but privileged as a key motivating factor. Merton sees the spiritual liberation of theosis transforming humans into beings capable of being spontaneous and moved by love. However, he does not give sufficient attention to the pre-transformational powers of desire and affection that guide, influence, and determine our activity. With an increased appreciation and respect for the feminine, not only in linguistics and the workforce, significantly feminist rereadings and therefore rewritings have emerged and contribute to the subjects, such as spiritual direction as a whole. 
Grace Jansen writes in Becoming Divine towards a feminist philosophy of religion that persons are not ready-made souls inserted into bodies by God, nor minds which could be mature and whole independent of the physical history of the individual, and which could arguably continue after bodily death. Rather, human personhood is achieved, and achieved at considerable cost. A human baby begins life as a mass of conflicting desires. In order to become a unified subject, some of those desires have to be repressed. This repression of desires is the formation of the unconscious, and from the unconscious, repressed desires may always threaten to erupt. Therefore, strategies have to be in place to control thought, feeling, and behavior, lest the fragile subject falls apart once again into fragments. Traditionally, religion has been the source of some of the most effective of these strategies of control. Jansen, 1999. The role of desire is clear, and this should suggest innumerable things when considered with the Mertonian vision of a person living in the continual transformation of a monastic spirituality. Through spiritual direction, a person grows ethically, socially, psychologically, and, in order for all this to be considered spiritually, we must highlight emotionally or desiringly. If a person desires to live, as Corinthians 10.31 suggests, quote, it means that in all his or her actions he is free from the superficial automatism of conventional routine. It means that in all that he or she does, he acts freely, simply, spontaneously from the depths of his or her heart, moved by love. Given, as Jansen says, that religion has provided effective controls for behavioral guidance in the development of desire, but also considering that the project of human spiritual life is, ought to be, transformation to become divine, Merton's understanding of the need to release repressed desire and direct that toward this divinization of human life remains prophetic and vital. Merton says, It is perhaps true that every man and woman has a special and even perilous vocation to complete the supreme work of art, which is sanctification of the person. Tremendously significant is Merton's use of the word sanctification, transgressing normative Christian spirituality that centers its concern on eschatological soteriology or the final salvation of the human soul, Merton uses the language of divinization in the recognition of a theosicial priority to transform human life as a kind of fully realized Johannine eschatology. Between this recognition of the facets of the human soul, the whole person, in particularly the deeply ingrained etchings of us by desire, and the need for transformative spirituality, the basic concept is that of the cataphatic being surpassed by the apophatic. The surface of life, the facade, the symbolic, must be overcome. Jansen speaks of this in her reconsideration of the Nietzschean Superman idea as a representation of this basic human self-overcoming. What Nietzsche would not acknowledge is any divine or supernatural forces participating in this process. Nietzsche would not consider this a theosis. But that is because Nietzsche saw a Christianity that no longer challenged its members, rather condoned their complacency. Merton did see this as supernatural, but the way 
this has been rewritten, I have already addressed. What this rewriting posits is a natural transformation that opens the semiotic nature to the pre-semiotic, the ordered signs to their pre-ordered origins. Kristeva and Derrida talk about the concept of Kora, Chora, as an explanation of the processes that occur behind the nature natured, which orders of relevance, i.e. human beings in this case, contact via sacred folds within nature. It is this very breaking beneath the cataphasis, entering into an apophasis, a pre-semiosis of nature naturing, where the true self begins to be known. Note, for a full explanation of Merton's theology of the true self, see another mentor of mine's James Finley's Merton's Palace of Nowhere. I cannot recommend that book enough, especially to my current audience. Quote, the whole purpose of spiritual direction is to penetrate beneath the surface of a man or a woman's life to get behind the facade of conventional gestures and attitudes which he presents to the world and to bring out his inner spiritual freedom, his or her inmost truth, which is what we call the likeness of Christ in his soul. Merton, 1960. Merton is clear that the transformative work in spiritual direction begins beneath a surface and also that it relies upon a spiritual force, a non-human force. This ties psychoanalytic understanding of human life with appropriations of ecstatic naturalist metaphysics. The end effect is a rewritten text for a spirituality that acknowledges the depth of humanity as an enigmatic and uncontainable, as well as dependent upon non-human orders of relevance to participate in the theosis. It is important that we recover, says Merton, the full idea of spiritual direction and rescue the concept from its impoverished condition, according to which the director is one to whom we apply for quasi-infallible solutions to moral and ascetic cases. In acknowledgement of this condition, Merton is discipling those who will follow his lead in the retrieval of spiritual direction, away from the mechanical, systematic, and rigid paradigm Merton envisions a natural revision of the relationship between director and directee. For he says that some directors, under the pretext of acting entirely according to supernatural principles, are tyrannical and arbitrary. Merton says that a rigidly supernatural theory of spiritual direction is not compatible with what spiritual direction and a revised monastic spirituality needs. Quote, the first thing that genuine spiritual direction requires in order to work properly is a normal, spontaneous human relationship. We must not suppose that it is somehow not supernatural to open ourselves easily to a director and converse with him in an atmosphere of pleasant and easy familiarity. This aids the work of grace, another example of grace building on nature. 1960. Here, Merton struggles with the linguistics of supernaturalism embedded into his own formation, while trying to iterate a natural, spontaneous mode of human-divine interaction that does not sustain the psychotheological pretensions of supernaturalist tradition and, I would argue, ontotheological claims. What Merton is forced to confess does not match his theological conclusions. There is a tension between these two, a tension that is only fully worked out as the postmodern is fully donned and a greater openness to a rewritten spirituality given. 5. 
spiritual direction on the groundless path. The main point is, and must be restated, that Enlightenment nuances and certainties have lost sway of the popular first world. In second and third world countries, these idealisms may never have held sway, or in some cases are even just beginning to find footholds. But the path we walk today is a groundless path. The postmodernity that is in many ways only beginning to gain its full momentum here in 2004 is increasingly making the idea that we walk a path naive. Where there is surety that a path is beneath our feet, there is also closure, which can only work as a counteractive to all messianicity, which is, as Derrida and Caputo have made clear, unnecessary for ethics today. Note there, Deconstruction in a Nutshell by John D. Caputo. Messianicity is openness to the marginalized, transgression of boundaries, and the anxiety of unknowing, all of which contribute to the development of faith. There is a certitude of any totality, belief, in any overarching pathway. We may inevitably fall into a tyranny of interpretation. We must remain open without falling into relativism, and this is the greatest challenge. Note, here Derrida is certain that both total unity and total diversity are suspect. How do you spiritually direct or guide a person without appeal to universal absolutes? Merton's proposal and retrievals that I have explored a little above are preemptive in their recognition of the prescription of the needs of postmodern people in a deconstructive age. Merton is directly aligned to Derridian thought and, as Merton recommends, that, quote, perhaps sometimes a little anxiety can be a good thing. But that said, and the anxiety of Derrida confirmed in Merton, the simple answer to the question here is by example. Without categorical imperatives, utilitarian calculations of right and good and true that span time and space, what the postmodern world craves are examples, and people willing to lead through their example. Spiritual leaders who seem to demonstrate good examples are apparently popular today and answering many people's needs on a large scale. The Pope, the Dalai Lama, the Archbishop Desmond Tutu, and other religious leaders who walk the walk are examples to the need of filling this void left by the surreptitious departure of spiritual and moral certainties. As Merton wrote of the spiritual director before even 1960, the first duty to be an effective director is to see to his or her own interior life and take time for prayer and meditation since he will never be able to give to others what he does not possess himself. What we need to walk, this groundless path, this path of unknowing, bereft of certitudes, are guides. And having only famous guides will not suffice. The Pope is not a sufficient spiritual director for everyone. The Dalai Lama can only teach so many. Despite the publication of numerous books by both religious leaders, individuals on the local level need to take seriously what is a call to holiness, a call to the spiritual life that requires hospitality to each other and rejects either walling ourselves into confined cells or even the limits of our own complacent consumer lives. Richard Rohr's simplicity moves from this base in Merton, for Merton continues in his text to discuss how the director directs in simplicity. 
the literatures are moving toward fulfilling the needs of people for suggestions in this area. Many texts have yet to be written, however, that are sensitive of this context and this need in the postmodern hermeneutics of spiritual life. Whatever the ultimate trajectory will appear to be, for now, it is one without certain direction, rather one that wanders. That in itself, now I think, is the greatest gift that we can have in spiritual direction. Freedom to wander. 6. Not all who wander are lost. I think Tolkien's words were prophetic, as well as being descriptive for his time. This is not to say they are true, for this is part of the entire problem we face today. Spirituality is far too certain of itself, despite perhaps a tentative foothold within rapidly increasing secularism. We uphold moral positions today that are exclusive and, further, demonstrative of supreme deception about the subtext of our actions, both local and global. Humility is also problematic, and its weaknesses are well noted by Nietzsche, among others. Perhaps Soren Kierkegaard's repetition of St. Paul to deal with our salvation in fear and trembling, 1 Corinthians, is a preemptive tourniquet to the Nietzschean critique, but it is not sufficient. The Pauline texts are compromised today by their interpretive surpluses and are at best homiletical, that is, exhortative. They no longer serve their thoughtful purpose and cannot be taken within their eschatological context in this post-Y2K millennial environment. What I believe must be embraced today is this notion of hospitality and of wandering. The reconstructions of what we see as the good life since World War II have championed the stable, secure, white picket fenced home, the reliable breadwinning husband and the homemaking wife. These reconstructions propose Edenic visions of stability and certitude that were utopian to say the least, and may be illusory and self-deceptive to say the most. Transgression, a healthy spiritual mode, would here be a wandering off the property, out of the suburbs and into a different land, where things are, perhaps, uncertain, where dinner is not necessarily a meatloaf served precisely at 6 p.m., this movement is from the naivete of ontotheological predicates to the openness of uncertainty and the hospitality to the unknown other. This movement is within what I am seeing as the psychotheology of the present, the rewritten monastic spirituality. Monastic spirituality has been in the retrieval process since Merton's famous autobiography. Widespread popularity in classically monastic practices such as contemplation, meditation, asceticism have entered post-1960 popular culture, most sources being brought from the Eastern religious traditions rather than the Western sources. This need to go to the East has been, in part, due to these metaphorical and literal monastic walls. It was not until the late 1970s that Thomas Keating, began to retrieve and promote contemplative spirituality for the common people in the form of centering prayer. Increasingly today, the spirituality of Buddhism finds greater appeal among Christians than many traditional Christian forms of prayer and ritual. All this has led me to a proposed rewritten spirituality. 
wandering past the walls and confines that have sheltered traditional Christian spirituality within ecclesial, monastic, or clerical walls is not a losing of the way. Rather, I believe, a growing of the way. This deconstruction is anything but a destruction. This entrance to the play of reinterpretation is wanderlust, for sure. But perhaps the only thing that will save Christian spirituality from becoming buried, entombed, petrified within the very ecclesial walls built to protect and sustain it. 7. Conclusions, Holes, and Openings The writings of Thomas Merton and his spiritual disciples have worked to perpetuate the growing awareness of Christian spirituality in the contemplative and apophatic tradition. There is a tremendous breach between this field of theology and other theological departments. One of the holes that this essay seeks to indicate is that between spiritual theology and philosophical theology. Exploring this whole, I think, will create an opening in the study of spiritual theology to communicate through philosophical theology with the secular mind, which embraces philosophy and psychology and marginalizes by assuming that it has grown past its roots in Dark Ages theology and Christianity. Some have spoken of the postmodern world as one that has assumed Derrida's critique of Plato's presumptive dualism. All dualisms assume a singular reality and are thus totalizing in their proposed cosmos or metaphysics of presence. Therefore, postmodernism is often said to have surpassed the artificial division of the sacred and the profane secular. Problematically, to the secular mind, this would work out to mean that the sacred has been surpassed and is consumed at best as an eccentric topography within the plurality of secularism. Others, religious types mostly, would in their turn perceive the sacred as achieving an ubiquitous God-in-anything, panentheistic status. Aside from the fact that neither of these alternate visions to the secular, sacred, dualistic cosmos are what Derrida has in mind, all of such renditions and reproductions of our cosmology fail to achieve. They are all still metaphysical. They do nothing. Instead, the kind of action that a surpassed dyadic model needs is one that is methodological and therefore non-metaphysical but active. From theory to praxis, Spiritual theology, through a psychotheological methodology of action, transgressively engages boundaries and limits that we have held as universal categories since the Enlightenment. Thanks for listening. For more of my further developed thoughts on this, continue with checking out my 2005-2006 major work, The Ethics of Understanding God. And please follow on Spotify so we can try and force them to actually pay so that we can give that money to the interviewees I uh, would like to continue to do for three hours plus at a time. It's insane that we can't get money from our work these days, but if we get enough followers, apparently 100, they have to actually give you the money they earn from our work. So I would love to forward that on to uh people I get to talk to in the future, especially some of the professors I have coming up. So thanks for listening. Take care. Peace. 
Hermetic Science Enterprises is a publishing company based in Scotland, UK, that specializes in Western esoteric printed literature as well as educational videos. With various imprints under its belt, its roster consists of grimoire tradition literature, alchemical works, Golden Dawn tradition books, and the several texts and videos originally belonging to the philosophers of nature. Besides its downloadable videos and standard hardcover edition books, Hermetic Science Enterprises also produces beautiful and precious limited fine edition books that are true pieces of art. For more information to order any of its products, please visit www.hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk that's hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. And as a lot of you know, I've uh, talked with the publisher Lenny on the podcast before, including a six-hour epic uh, extended version on the Patreon, and uh, seen the fine edition of his new grimoire of Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, which is only available for purchase up to 50 limited copies uh, till the end of May, I believe. So check it out now. HermeticScienceEnterprises.co.uk